You're listening to Farm to Tabor. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Farm to Tabor, a farm and food systems podcast coming to you from Fayetteville, North Carolina. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Tabor. Today we have an interview with Dr. Brandon Ross, originally from Wyoming, now teaching civil engineering at South Carolina's Clemson University. Brandon and I go way back. We were getting trained on science stuff at the same time at the University of Florida. Brandon and I were both into using science to make things more sustainable, but I was doing agriculture and he was doing the sustainable angle on how to make concrete buildings that won't fall apart, which was a serious topic down there in America's hurricane trap. So we had very similar goals and completely different ways of going about it, which was fun, but our work never really had any overlap. So we actually got to know each other more just from being neighbors. We were both in grad school while being married with kids, so our families kind of teamed up to watch each other's kids and just survive those years. The reason I say this is we still keep in touch, and we actually did this podcast at the tail end of a trip we all did between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, my family going around to see friends and family, including Dr. Ross and their their family. So do part in the sound quality. We're in less of a sound booth and more of a kid's bedroom. So there wasn't a whole lot of lineup with our separate disciplines back in the day. But as luck would have it, I wound up doing a lot of work in indoor farms. So now we can actually join forces. Today we'll be talking building design, various approaches to farming in the city, the brief but obligatory detour into cannabis, and more. So we're here with Dr. Brandon Ross, a professor of civil engineering, assistant professor at Clemson University. Fantastic. And what part of civil engineering do you work with? Well, I'm a structural engineer by my um, professional work and also by my um, training and education and research. But I've drifted over towards architectural theory and how do we design buildings that are not, not just good buildings, buildings that we want to actually keep around for a while instead of right. tearing down. So uh, I do. I, I enjoy <laughs> this career because I get a, if I have any great idea, I get to try it out a little bit. It's fun. That's awesome. And, you know, you mentioned durability being a thing because you work specifically with, was it concrete? Yeah. So any yeah. mistakes so that's kinda... <laughs> my concrete, reinforced concrete, pre-stressed concrete is my bread and butter. Um, but you know, I like to branch out and try and just, just learn different things, <laughs> try different things. So, but that's, right. that's where I've, I've done most of my work for sure. Fantastic. Know? Okay. Um, it's fun to break. Yeah. It's fun to break things. So, yeah. so uh, speaking of, I don't know, broken things, uh, let's talk a little bit about and indoor agriculture and buildings that are geared towards that. Um, we've kind of gotten off on this one before, um, tangents, uh, thoughts about buildings for indoor ag. I think I remember we were talking about, um, there's a lot of HVAC requirements. Uh, you want buildings that can withstand a lot of humidity and, uh, you know, water stuff. So any thoughts on that? Yeah. Um, well, I, more and more of the theory or philosophy I'm drifting towards with buildings, um, there's a long life loose fit. 
are, are two very popular kind of mantras for building design. So long life means you want it to be very durable materials, make it stronger than it needs to be, make it bigger than it needs to be, um, make it out of uh, things that are uh, going to be durable in humid environments. Um, loose fit would be, you know, don't have it to be so specific that I'm making a building for indoor agriculture and that's all it's ever going to be. Um, because as soon as something, you know, you have a disruptive technology or, or something changes with how they want to utilize the city or the building, then, um, that building becomes obsolete. And so, um, those are two things. Um, other ones, there's a idea of layering of our buildings. And so Stuart Brand, um, kind of a cool hippie philosopher uh, guy. Hope I can say that. I say it as a, <laughs> it's an honor. Yeah. I, I, I say that that way. Um, he, he wrote this book, How Buildings Learn in the 90s. And recognize that buildings are things that are always changing. So he, he says, building's not something you finish. It's something you start. <laughs> but that it changes at different rates. And so things like the structure were very changing very rarely or infrequently. Whereas things like the HVAC systems or even the, the stuff that we keep in our building are changing at a much faster rate. So the degree to which we can separate those layers is really beneficial. So for an indoor agriculture uh, building, you know, you want to start with your structure or your shell, but you want to limit the interactions that your HVAC system might have with that. So then down the road, if you want to upgrade your HVAC or some new technology comes along to help you grow better, you can um, quickly replace that, um, your, your previous one, without impacting the other functions of your building. Yeah, that's actually really handy. Um, so one of the fun things you run into in indoor agriculture, um, so that applies to both greenhouses and to, to enclosed warehouse building, is um, you know you have a $750,000 greenhouse, and it needs a $3.5 million HVAC system. So the odds are that you're going to have to be messing with that HVAC at some point are quite high. Um, so that, that's really useful. So when you say interact, you know, keep the interactions yeah. to a minimum, you mean like going through concrete, like times you have to cut holes through walls and stuff like that. Yeah, that'd be a great example, um, of that. Uh, I, I think that's the, the one I'm, I'm coming to mostly right now, but I, I think generally in indoor ag, my, my sense is they've kind of pretty well figured this out and they just start with the shell on the outside and put everything, um, to the inside of that. Um, other building and, and things were not quite as sophisticated with that, with our office buildings and residential buildings. Um, and so, but industrial type buildings were generally figured that out quite a bit better. Cool. Cool. Um, another thing I'm wondering if you have any opinions on is plumbing. So <laughs> something that you'll run into in <laughs> uh, yeah. of plumbing, um, something you'll run into in indoor ag buildings is uh, there's, there's always a lot more water than you thought was humanly possible. Um, either on purpose or by accident, uh, there's a lot of pipes and, uh, they don't always do exactly what they're supposed to. All right. Um, and even in, in normal operating conditions, you have some splashing, you have some dripping. Um, so you basically have two options. You can have those floors sloped down to a drain and you can have them graded, or you can have somebody full time running around with the vacuum, <laughs> picking it up. Right. Yeah. Or a squeegee. 
Um, what I found is a lot of uh, indoor ag facilities, they're kind of in rented space. They'll rent out some warehouse space. And so they don't always have control over that. So they're winding up with flat floors. Oh, and yeah. uh, it's kind of funny because, you know, we're, we're talking automation. Um, we're, we're going to make agriculture a lot more efficient by using automation. And, uh, you know, they're, they're not using the most basic kind, which is a sloped floor. Uh, <laughs> so, um, as someone who does deal, who only deals biology, I do nothing with civil engineering. What, what is the difficulty level of coming into a fresh facility, a warehouse with a flat floor and making it sloped? Uh, well, I'd, I'd back up to a, an earlier conversation or earlier topic we just had about, um, loose fit. And there's a bit of a balance here because if it's automated, and it's just a sloping floor, you're going to remove the water a lot quicker. And ultimately that's going to help your, your building, your structure to last longer, long life. But we see this in um, say parking garages where the ramps are part of the parking. And then later, if you, you know, now with Tom's vehicles and these kind of things, and I'm going to get back to indoor agriculture in a minute. um, We're thinking we're not going to need as much parking garage space. So what are we going to do with all those ramped floors? And it becomes a challenge for designers to reuse that. So um, I would probably, for indoor ag, err on the side of, yeah, let's build it with a with a ramped floor. That's going to make the building last longer. But try to think ahead of time, all right, what, what can we do to unramp this floor for a potential future use? Is unramp a word? Sure. We'll, I just, we'll I just make made it a word. <laughs> okay. Now, so going into a new space um, and wanting to have ramp floors, you know, that's they can pour a, a topping over it, just varying the thickness. Um, getting one that's, you know, thin but durable um, could be challenging, but, you know, there's certainly um, products out there that would do that. But I, I think you you hit on a really good point, and water generally is the destroyer of buildings. <laughs> True. And so um, coming up with a solid plan for that. And, and um, also I think just that idea of automation and maintainability, the easier it is to maintain it, the more likely it is that it's going to happen. The longer your building's going to last, the better it's going to be for when it moves on to its next purpose. So I, I think what I've just said there is a whole lot of, talking on both sides and different strategies, but that's what we face with buildings is you're trying to offset competing goals sometimes, make it last long, but also have a loose fit. And and you have to just make some calls and and, um, go with what you think uh, makes the most sense in your circumstance. Right. Very cool. Okay. And then this is maybe not a little bit out of your wheelhouse potentially, but something I'll see a lot of indoor ag facilities. I'll just make up an answer. Perfect. Okay. We love those. So if any electrical engineers are listening to us, you can yell about it later. So um, something I saw a few years ago when I was starting work in indoor ag was, so we have these buildings, we're going to grow plants, which means there's going to be a lot of lighting and there's going to be a lot of plumbing. So a lot of electrical and a lot of water in very close proximity. And um, this actually came up because I was doing food safety work with a client who had a professional, like an occupational health and safety background. So like worker safety and people not getting electrocuted in the workplace. That's a good thing. Usually. Yeah. It's, it's typically something we look up to and and aspire to. So, um, 
So <laughs> we kind of start talking and I go, oh my goodness, this is going to be a thing, isn't it? So in, the, in that particular facility, they had it under control because they had somebody who was thinking about it. Um, but, you know, that may not always be the case when somebody says, I want to get into indoor ag and they don't necessarily have an electrical engineering background. So any thoughts there on um, ways to just kind of deal with that, either from a theoretical or an applied standpoint, you know, like the fact that you just have a lot of water and a lot of plants and they're happening vertically. So you can have drips coming down from stuff. Um, <laughs> how to handle that? Yeah, I don't have any specifics. Um, you know, although I interact with a lot of mechanical and electrical engineers when I've designed buildings, um, you know, like you said, it's out of my wheelhouse, but I think that some of the same concepts, that layering concept that I just come up in, or that we just discussed, makes sense um the degree to which you can separate those out um so that you can work on the electrical independently without bothering the mechanical um is something and sometimes it's just you just can't get around it if you're going to automate growing you're going to need power and water and close proximity <laughs> that, yep. I, you know and that's just it's going to be what it's going to be and so I think that bringing in some protocols to enhance human safety, um, we're not as consistent as computer algorithms, but um, so we might be the weak link in the system, but your facility design needs to go hand in hand with your safety plan, I guess. Right. So what you're saying is you should think about safety before you just start building stuff. <laughs> yeah. Is that yeah. what you're suggesting? <laughs> It's novel, but yeah, I, I really, I think so. Yeah. I mean, at its core engineering, uh, I think about it as, okay, what are all the ways for me as a structural engineer, my building could fall down. Right. And then coming up with a reasonable plan to prevent that from happening. And so it would be the same thing for an electrical engineer or a mechanical engineer. What are all the different ways this could go horribly? <laughs> In which electrocution may proceed. Yeah, yeah and, and it's how do we um, prevent that or, or design for that? And so, yeah, if, if you don't know anything about it, you uh, shouldn't be... Uh, involved in in <laughs> mapping out wiring diagrams. Right. So maybe we should get some help on deck for that. So uh, something that you'll see um, <clears throat> in indoor and controlled environment agriculture, there's kind of two broad genres of people who get into it. There's folks from a traditional ag background who are like, you know, I can see which way the wind is blowing. Let me uh, upgrade my operation here. Um, and they tend to be pretty conversant with just the general logic and rules of assembling things and putting them together in the physical world. Um, and then you have your Silicon Valley tech bros. <laughs> bless their hearts, um, as yeah, we say in South Carolina. Bless their hearts. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there's, a, there's a mentality they call it, move fast and break things. And boy, um, that and safety go together like um, peanut butter and onion bagels. So, <laughs> as, as we know. <laughs> as we learned this morning. Yeah. Not at all. Um yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's an interesting uh, approach to things. Um, so that's been kind of fun to watch unfold. Um, uh, yeah, well, a lot of people like watching <laughs> train wrecks too. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not good to be on the train though, and it's I, I think that's a mentality that really kind of came at its core from the fact that folks were working in software, right? Um, fundamentally, yeah. yeah. If you're making apps, the consequences of failure are just not that high. Like people aren't going to buy your app, or it's going to look ugly, you know, something like that. Yeah. 
But when you move fast and break things with food, which has this habit of going into people's bodies and you did something wrong there, um, you know, you can put people six feet underground. Um, you can discredit your entire industry when folks go, wait a second, lettuce grown indoors is, is just not that, not that clean that we were led to believe and that kind of thing. Yeah. And so there's the consequences are much, much higher. And so there's this attitude towards risk that was built in a very low stakes environment that is now being brought to a very high stakes environment. So, you know, just word of the wise, you know. Think about stuff before you build it. It's, it's What's always the good. Law in computing where they double the computing speed every so many years, or I don't know. I'm here. Let's consult Google. Let's let's consult Google. All right. So Moore's law. Yeah. You know, so the, the computer and the software engineers will often cite Moore's law to talk about how rapidly computing is evolving and and these things and. Uh, in contrast, that with civil engineering, which is really a very slow <laughs> profession. I yeah. mean, most of the stuff we do as civil engineers, we we figured out the basics of it quite a while ago, and now we're just refining it. And but we like to point out back to the computer engineers and scientists that yes, but if your dam gets the blue screen of death or the spinny ball of death. Um, you know, once every three <laughs> months and you need to reboot, um, that's a problem. Right. Reliability is an issue when you're building infrastructure. Yeah. And so uh, it's a different mentality and it's what you bring up something I hadn't really thought of before, but yeah, if you're dealing with building apps and, you know, a glitch in a, a civil engineering program problem, or in this case, we are talking about an indoor agriculture, which I think go hand in hand with civil engineering. Um, yeah, that, that, that's a pretty scary, uh, mixture if, if people aren't, um, you know, wise and, and slow down. Right. Yeah. And, and Moore's law has been really helpful in indoor ag to the extent that it's making LEDs much, much cheaper. You know, the, just the general um, trend of technological development for that to become much cheaper. That's been really working out in our favor. Like that's finally starting to pencil out, which is fantastic. So there are part, a lot of elements of indoor ag where Moore's law does apply, but uh, the part where people have to learn stuff and we have a learning curve and it's just kind of, you know, it is what it is. Um, you know, that also needs to be recognized and there's, there's a certain amount of reliability that needs to be built into stuff. Um, again, you know, anytime you get into a new field, there's always a learning curve, right? Um, and that's fine. Like it's, that is the way of getting into new areas, learning new things, entering new fields. Um, but the fact that there is a learning curve has to be respected and, hand, and dealt with and handled and move fast and break things mentality. It does not always take that into account. Yeah. I, I think the idea of what, I think probably in indoor ag or a lot of sort of really growth industries, there's more of a fear of, of not trying and, and failure is a great teacher, but to offset that or to uh, temper that with some, you know, risk management and talking to really smart people who know what they're talking about, like yeah. Dr. Tabor, for example. Oh, that's nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, when I start a greenhouse, I know who I'm calling. Right. Uh, oh, beautiful. Yes. You should really call Nadia first, but you know. I don't know <laughs> Nadia, but, but right. okay. <laughs> I'll pitch you guys up. <laughs> All right. So, um, but yeah, you're, you're absolutely right there. Temper your, your excitement with, with talking to some people that, that know what they're doing. Amazing. So you also had some thoughts on just green architecture in general, some lead building. There was some stuff we were talking about there earlier. Yeah, there's some really interesting uh, 
things out there. I'm, I'm generally, you know, very supportive of the green building movement. Um, and, you know, in the United States, that usually takes the form of uh, United States Green Building Council lead credentials. And so you see that as you walk into a lot of new buildings. This is the lead silver, lead gold, lead platinum. Uh, and that just means that that particular building was designed to a set of standards for energy efficiency and for, um, you know, to try to reduce the overall environmental footprint of the building, um, which are all great and noble goals. One thing that has um, been demonstrated, though, recently is that some of those credentials actually can become anchors. So, you know, uh, Dr. Tabor and I are going to make a new building and we want to pat ourselves on the back for making it green. So we say, oh, let's have a silver, which meets a lot of great things. But by getting a sticker or a credential for having something like that, we're not thinking bigger about what we really should be doing. And so you're actually creating some anchor points that that might pull people up to a certain level, but then minimize their incentive to go any further. Um, so that's um, been kind of an interesting development as, as I've read some some papers and talked to people about that. Any like case studies in that that we want to talk about? Uh, I don't I, have to I, name names. I, I uh, <laughs> well, I'm I'm avoiding uh, naming names. Uh, some of my uh, one of my favorite colleagues uh, has worked on some of this stuff. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll pass on that. <laughs> so, <laughs> awesome. I, for one, really, I don't have any specifics other than just that as a general thing that's that's been demonstrated. Hmm. Um, and so, um, the other thing that that I'm finding very interesting is that. When you look at the rate at which we tear down our buildings, how old they are on average when we tear them down, it's well before they're physically used up. Mm-hmm. Okay, It would be analogous to buying a new car and driving it till it got to 70,000 miles on it, still had a lot of life left in it, but deciding that you, you know, it didn't have a backup camera. And so you wanted to go and scrap it and get a new one or it wasn't quite big enough or, um, and so, uh, there was an interesting study in Minneapolis, St. Paul in the early two thousands where they looked at these buildings and, you know, out of all the ones that were demolished, um, the average age at demolition, we're looking at 20 and 30 years and, you know, those buildings could last way longer than that. Right. So I realized that, or a lot of a lot of people have. I'm just sort of um, standing on their shoulders. That if we want to design buildings to be sustainable, resilient, that doesn't just mean low energy or, or lead design. But how do we actually design them so in twenty, thirty years we don't just want to demolish them? Right. They're easy to retrofit. They're not hideous and <laughs> look really dated, kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and making sure that they can be easily maintained because that ends up being one of the biggest reasons people decide to tear things down. And that'll do it as the maintenance is just too high. Yeah, maintenance is just too high. So that's something that I'm spending a lot of time working on these days hmm. is trying to actually come up with the data. We, we, we know a lot of this stuff qualitatively and intuitively. Right. 
but there's it's a problem that is very difficult to collect data on it because you're going to individual building owners and individual buildings and it's it's not something you can put sensors out there um, right. to collect and so uh, you know hopefully you know we can do another podcast here in a few years and we're going to have some data <laughs> under my belt in this project and it's always the dream right always data. the dream yeah amazing can we talk about uh when we met sure uh so we were neighbors in grad school and we started a garden plot right across yeah, from lake house yeah you have had those garden plots yeah right by the bat house and, and then there was a time zone change and also we had a kid <laughs> yeah yeah and so what ended up with a nice time in the evening uh to Not garden. time zone change. It was like daylight savings. Yeah. Yeah. Daylight savings. Yeah. And so right about the time we were going to start harvesting stuff that happened. Gone. And so that was kind of a fail. But once again, we tried. So in the vein of things that require maintenance and uh, <laughs> yeah, right. don't come through. Yeah. And also those fire ants would always bite uh, my yeah. son. You can't put your baby down because there's fire ants <laughs> yeah. everywhere. Yeah, so anyways, there's just those little things that we should have consulted with, uh, you know, somebody in the know to to go along with our theme. Yeah. And then um, they had those uh, loquats or kumquats, those trees. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a good time. And I took my... (laughs) This is the grad student housing area. They just had these trees that would make uh, loquats or kumquats. It's the one that's not a citrus. And uh, they're just there, and so people are picking them. So... Yeah, proceed. All right. So I, I had taken my uh, my my son swimming at the community pool there. And so we were in our swimsuits and flip-flops and walking back. And I saw this amazing tree full of lovely fruit right by a chain-link fence and a chain-link gate. And I realized that if I moved the gate open a little bit, I could have one foot on that, one foot on the fence. And it was going to be really secure. <laughs> yeah, it was going to be really really safe and uh basically the opposite of everything we talked about earlier yeah uh, and edible landscaping yeah and i i reached up and was was sort of doing my best tarzan impersonation picking this fruit when um here come the tables yeah, we come driving around driving the <laughs> just brandon like standing on the fence like uh yeah it, it was it was something else um yeah, it's lots of questions about design for edible landscaping. <laughs> it yeah. kind of brings up the point, actually. Folks are like, we should build, we should plant fruit trees in cities because then, I don't know, something, something, add homeless people profit. I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, University of Florida had a fair number of mm-hmm. fruit trees on yeah. campus, not just in student housing mm-hmm. there. Um, I'm not sure. Did they spend more time cleaning up the fruit that fell? Yeah. So fruit trees by and large are incredibly high maintenance. We were talking, I guess, with Michelle about this a little bit yesterday. Her uncle's got a, her uncle's got a fruit tree that wasn't doing good things. And uh, he was, he was asking for advice and I was like, okay, it's a pruning problem. It's just one cut flush to the ground. Boom. All your troubles are over. Yeah, right. And, uh, so yeah, there was, it was, it was, um, Boy, for fruit trees to really produce, I mean, you can have a couple here and there, and if you're not too worried about actually getting some kind of production out of them, then whatever you do is going to make you happy. Um, They're going to produce to your very, very low standards. Um, But fruit trees, to actually get something that you'd recognize as food, (laughs) 
if we'd be willing to like actually go somewhere and pick without up. having to climb a chain link fence. Without, and, yeah, yeah, without, <laughs> yeah. Is they're incredibly high maintenance, and so planting them out in the city. I mean, you have to spray them all the time. How do you think that's going to go over? Uh, you have to have bees. Um, so keeping bees in the city is already rather fraught, you know, and it's not even the city sponsoring it by planting trees that need it. Um, and they're just kind of a mess because even in the best of cases, you know, a, a strong proportion of the fruit produced by a tree never gets eaten. It just drops straight to the ground because it's damaged, uh, weather problems, bug problems, whatever. And so you're well, all of a sudden it. I, I'm just thinking out loud here, yeah. uh, all that fruit on the ground becomes another health hazard because yeah. that's, uh, you know, undesirable little critters, uh, mm-hmm. give them a fuel source. Yeah. Um, if you go to an apple orchard that's not a tourist apple orchard, like a real apple orchard. <laughs> um, I've never been to one of those, but I've been to plenty of the tourist ones. Right, yes. Yeah. So the real ones, um, when you're trying to sell apples, you know, they're going to go somewhere and they don't like. So when they're doing like a you pick apple orchard, they keep the ground pretty clean because people are going to have to come in there and it has to look pretty. Um, but when they're not showing off for tourists, uh, there's kind of like a carpet layer of applesauce. <laughs> On the oh ground. wow! Yeah, you know, because they'll just start dropping kind of midway through the season. Um, you know, due to again bug problems, weather problems, all kinds of stuff, and they tend to break down pretty quickly. But the amount that is dropping tends to increase throughout the season because you know just more and more problems kind of accelerate throughout the season, and uh, the apples that do drop are bigger, and so you just get more and more. And there starts to be again like a layer of kind of dried up crusty applesauce on the ground of the orchard, kind of here and there amid the clumps of grass. And um, it starts to smell like funky rotting apples slash, if you want to be really romantic about it, apple cider vinegar. And there's vinegar flies everywhere. It is, it's not cute and it's not sexy. Um, I don't know what it is that the tourist apple orchards do to keep that from happening. I think they just have really regular pickups. Uh, They keep their weeds really long so you can't see it. Uh, That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, So when you talk about getting like, you know, fruit production in a city, you're like, hmm. I don't know if y'all know what that looks like in real life. Oh, that's going to be a mess. So uh, in terms of sustainable design, and then you have, you have people like Brandon who are like, I'm going to get me that fruit and they climb up there. And, and then you got a city liability problem, which, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> folks are kind of like, ah, you know, is this whole liability lifestyle is, is crapping our style, but really, um, you know, <laughs> there's, you there's know, just a lot of great ideas out there that aren't. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think nut trees could potentially work out, you know, because they drop stuff that's dry. You know, that that could potentially work out. They don't tend to need as much spraying. But fruit trees, oh, you got to be out of your mind. I'm told so, that acorns are edible. Technically, humans. that is true. Yeah. yeah. Um, the really good trick, so they're, they're full of tannins. So the really good trick for making them so you can actually eat them, you got to leach all that stuff out, is you put them in like a cloth bag and you stick them in your toilet tank. So every time you flush it... Oh, it rinses them there. out. Yeah, all right. Uh, yeah, that's the trick, right? So, um, <laughs> right. You, know, you learn something new all the time. Someday after the apocalypse, yeah. you know, when your house has been destroyed, just put the acorns in your toilet and it'll be fine that you don't have any more. <laughs> I have another thing that just occurred to me on uh, indoor ag, mm. and something that we this is just a new problem of having urban buildings with. Lots of uh, water and growing medium and stacked up high. And, you know, how, how do we, what does that do to the buildings for the, the structural loads that are on them yeah. when you have an earthquake? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, 
Force equals mass times acceleration. You it have does. a lot of mass there. Yeah. Earthquakes are shaking Any it. Earthquake-proof racks and racks and racks of plants. Yeah, well, you certainly want to brace all those off. Uh, that's very obvious, and, and that needs to get into the design. Yeah, I mean, you're looking at electrical fire, you know, when stuff starts shaking around and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so I don't know specifically about um, indoor agriculture uh racks, but I, I can speak uh, a similar problem. Something new that's coming along are green roofs. Mm-hmm. And so where you're putting all the growing medium and, and plants and things on the roof and, you know, what does that do to, well, for one, that the amount of moisture in the growing medium is, is um, different depending on the watering cycle and the season. And how much weight does that actually, or, or how much, what is that weight? Right. Um, and so there's actually been some interesting work going on to that to guide engineers for how to design things. Um, but I, I suspect that having all that water and things sloshing around actually is quite a good energy dissipator. I don't think that uh, indoor agriculture folks would... Would like that very much. <laughs> yeah, they probably want their... <laughs> There's their uh, their crop to ride out an earthquake. Ideally, um, yeah. But that's that's just another sort of uh, interesting challenge or, or opportunity. Um, how do you? I, I think the philosophy would probably be: let's protect the crop in minor earthquakes, and let's just protect life safety. The building and the major <laughs> and the ones. Yeah, and that yeah. that philosophy is something that structural engineers generally use. Um, yeah, it makes sense. Urban buildings. Yeah, I mean, uh, it depends on the crop, right? Because some of your crops, like uh, microgreens, leafy greens, and herbs, they can have a pretty short crop cycle, you know, like as short as maybe three weeks, maybe more like four. So losing one crop, it sucks, but it's not going to, like, destroy half a year's worth of work. Um, I would be curious to see what the cannabis people think of that, how long that crop cycle works out, and what happens if you lose that. Does um, LED yeah. work for cannabis? Um... That's a great question. I don't actually work. <laughs> right, right now the, the internet is a buzz wanting to know. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not something I'm actually too familiar with. Um, I work primarily with the lettuce and leafy greens and herbs people because in order to sell to a supermarket, you have to have a food safety audit, which is kind of where I come in is helping people tighten up their system so they can get through that thing and, and, and get settled. Um, but the cannabis people have no such requirements, so they do not call me. So I'm just, uh, you know, the you know, cannabis is fine. I just know nothing about it. So <laughs> all right, <laughs> that's where I'm at. But, I'm sorry, internet. <laughs> <laughs> Next time yeah. <laughs> we'll find an actual weed expert. Um, but yeah, so I, I know traditionally they've been using uh, sodium high, high intensity discharge lights, which has caused its own kind of raft of issues because it's, it's a very hot light. And so it's very hot. You tend to get very dry. Uh, you wind up with a lot of insect and disease problems or pest and disease problems that are unique to hot, dry environments. You get a lot of spider mites, a lot of powdery mildew. Those are kind of your classic cannabis growing problems. And it really all kind of comes down to the lighting system. So hmm. um, definitely they're cheaper. And people who grow cannabis will say have a lot of experience using HID lights. So I don't know how motivated they are to move over. Um, but certainly there's some potential for uh, dealing with some of your t- uh, traditional cannabis crop issues by switching different light source. So One of my grad students working on the um, Adaptable Buildings project that I talked about, she uh, is from down in Atlanta. Oh, yeah. And someone in her hometown 
uh, just got busted for a huge grow operation in a neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And um, she forwarded me the uh, newspaper article and suggested that we could use that as a case study for adaptable architecture. Hmm. Because it started out as one thing, a residence, and it turned right. into something drastically different. Something drastically different. <laughs> and what was inherent in the design of that house that um, made it such that it was uh, suited towards this other purpose? Amazing. Well, there was. Or not. <laughs> right. Well, there was this one time, I think, off in Elk Grove, California, they actually had a bunch of people starting to do cannabis groves in this one fairly high end kind of McMansion neighborhood. And part of the logic for that, it wasn't the structural properties of the building so much as it was, this is a neighborhood where nobody knows each other and nobody talks to each other. So we can do whatever we want in this house, like in these empty houses. Oh, yeah. Nobody was going to notice. So that's that's another property to look into, I, I suppose. Well, we, we do talk about that. It's not <laughs> only what the physical building looks like, but what's its context or setting. And, and really the context and setting tends to make as much or more difference. Location, location, location. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. Well, I think we're, we're looking at, uh, I should help the husband pack. Um, <laughs> All right. Should not leave him. Goodbye, internet. Stuff. Yeah. Have a good one, guys. Thanks, Dr. Ross. And thanks for listening to Farm to Tabor. Join us next week to find out what grass-fed beef, car manufacturing, and donuts have in common. We normally think of smart design as being for the product getting made, but using smart design just to set up how you do the making behind the scenes is also a powerful tool for sustainability. We'll talk more about that next time. Catch you then. Special thanks to Revolutionary Coworking in Fayetteville, North Carolina for recording space.